London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Film Forum is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. When it opened on the Upper West Side as an alternative screening space for independent films in 1970, it had 50 folding chairs, one projector, and a $19,000 annual budget. It's grown since then into being both a leading cinema for New York City premieres of independent foreign and American features and documentaries, and a repertory theater that presents classic movies and overlooked masterpieces. Pieces. Karen Cooper, who has been its director for 48 of those years, joins us now, along with programmer Mike Maggiore. Welcome to our show, and, and happy anniversary. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Karen, When what was the, the concept? Was it always to present two distinct complementary film programs? No. The concept was not even mine. It uh, started with two young men, Peter Feinstein and Sandy Miller, uh, in 1970, who wanted to present overlooked movies that nobody else was seeing, and for want of a better word, they called it independent film, but I think most people thought it was underground filmmaking and associated this kind of movie making with Andy Warhol and uh, the Velvet Underground, and it, it had a very counterculture uh, aura about it. Because there were an awful lot of uh, so-called art film theaters in New York in the 1970s. Uh, there was the Thalia, the New Yorker, the Elgin, the Bleecker Street Cinema, the uh, the Sunshine, the 80 St. Mark's Place, some others, I think, as well. Um, so, uh, But none of them were playing underground films. Actually, the Sunshine only uh, came into being a few years ago and then huh. closed a few years later. But you're right, there were many, many art theaters. However, what they were playing for the most part were um, smaller American films and uh, foreign films, usually French or Italian, possibly Japanese. We were right around the corner. I say we, Film mm. Forum, in its, in its tiny 19-seat uh, version. Where were you from, located? From the New Yorker Theater, oh, right, which was right. Dan Talbot's Theater mm -hmm. on Broadway and 88th Street. Because uh, they were even theaters, for example, on 42nd Street there was the Apollo Theater, not the Apollo Theater of uh, 125th Street fame, that showed uh, second-run foreign films. <laughs> it was a different film culture in those days. Has everything changed because of television? Uh, I we have Turner Classic Movies, and we have Netflix, and uh, and Criterion has, uh, has its own Program is you know, so, so much has changed, it's hard to know wh where to begin. The theaters that you mentioned, 90% of those closed mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. I, I would say the largest being real estate values in New York, which make it hard for any small business to survive unless you own the building you're in. So, I mean, mom and pop stores close all the time, and that was true of smaller movie theaters that weren't part of a commercial chain. And you're a non-profit. Uh, could you have survived by relying simply on box office receipts? No, we couldn't have, and we can't today. I mean, it really takes a very different financial paradigm to bring a movie like um, Sorry We Missed You, which is what we currently have on screen by Ken Loach. Loach has had commercial successes. He's, he's won the uh, big prize in Cannes, the Palme d'Or, but he's still something of an acquired taste. And not because he makes quiet films. He he makes films that are quiet but mm. quietly angry. Mm. They're about working class British life, and there's uh, 
much they have to say about the world Americans live in today as well. Now, Mike, you only uh, came on board at the new location, uh, but isn't this, uh, the, the one at 209 West House Street, the third home of Film Forum? Fourth. Fourth. It's, <laughs> it's actually the, the fourth yes. home because the first, as Karen mentioned, was on West 88th Street. Then, uh, Karen, I believe you moved to Van Damme Street. Right, right 1975 to 1980. Mm-hmm. Then Watt Street, 1980, mm-hmm. for another nine or ten years. That was a great location. And, and that, that was, yeah. It was It was a garage that was turned, mm-hmm. we turned into a twin cinema. And why was, why did you have to leave that? Real estate. The <laughs> building, the garage, I mean, it was a one-story building, was sold by the Trinity Church to um, developers who were building a 22-story high-rise. Mm-hmm. And it was at that point that I found the space we are currently in, which is on West Houston. And you can actually see a glimmer of the Watt Street Twin Cinema in the opening minutes of Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, mm-hmm. which the first scene of which takes place at a cafe on Watt Street. Yeah. So this, you moved to this one in 1990, mm-hmm. um, and you've come a long way. It's now a, a four-screen cinema, open 365 days a year with $280,000, uh, $280,000 annual admissions, 500 seats, 60 employees? That's right. 4,500 members. We'll talk about members in just a moment. And your operating budget is 5 to $6 million. That's a little wow. over $6 million now. Wow. So, yeah, big changes. But it's they were incremental. I mean, they occurred mm-hmm. over decades, obviously. And I think the, the film scene changed over those years, again, incrementally. I, you mentioned television as being a problem. Well, Television was a problem in the in the 1950s. The movie business folks mm-hmm. thought they were in big trouble, and it turned out that they weren't. I mean, they did. They came up with 3D and and big budget uh, extravaganzas and and ways to emphasize the difference between going to the movies and staying home and watching the Ed Sullivan Show. But then other technological changes also created competition for the movie business, like uh, VCRs and uh, DVDs. And now, of course, streaming is, frankly, our biggest competitor. But uh, television never showed the kinds of films that you saw at theaters like Film Forum. They weren't showing the, 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 the great Italian and French New Wave films and the films from England that, uh, uh, like Ken Loach, there were so many before him. Uh, mm. There had to be, uh, something's happened. Haven't the tastes of moviegoers changed a bit? Well, I, you could argue mm. both ways. I don't think taste has changed. I think people have less time. Uh, less money, less energy, more ways to spend all of those of those things. It's a lot easier to stay home, whether you're watching cable TV, HBO streaming, than it is to go out, take transportation, and go to to a completely separate location. Maybe you have to get a babysitter. So it, it, the convenience factor is a big deal. And then there are no Bergman's, Truffauts, Fellini's making movies these days. Well, there are some mm-hmm. pretty terrific filmmakers making movies these days. I mean, I think the culture has changed. So the name Bergman and Fellini may have been household names in the 60s and the 70s. And um, people like Mike Lee and... Um, 
you know, Ken Loach and uh, Werner Herzog are less less of a household name than than uh, those big Swedish and French and Italian filmmakers mm-hmm. of 40 years ago. But there are still some great films being made. It's just a different world that they're being born into. And now you have uh, this major re- renovation that added uh, new seats and a fourth theater. Correct. So mm-hmm. how do you divide up uh, what you show in each screening room? Well, we we found that you know the, the, the renovation and the addition of the fourth screen was part of a, a project that we had been talking about for quite a while because we found that having only three screens didn't allow... Only three screens. Only three screens. Well, the, the equivalent of three different movie theaters, even with that. Sure. But e- two of those three screens are attached to locked calendar engagements, and only one screen could be devoted to holdovers or films that we would book for an ongoing engagement. And we found that we were losing some films because we didn't have the capacity to hold on to hits that could play for months and months. And we found that if we were to add a fourth screen and actually improve the comfort for our our patrons, that it would it would actually give us more flexibility in terms of bringing in more films, holding hits over for a longer period of time. And we had done a survey about, I think it was about two and a half years ago, yep. about um, you know asking all of our members and asking people who came through the doors what they liked about the theater, what they didn't like. And we kept hearing that the programming was wonderful, but they didn't like the seats. Right. And <laughs> so we were able to get brand new seats, much more comfortable, spacing the rows out a little bit more. So Sight lines more are great, room. better too now, aren't they? And yes, and the... the um, definitely the slope in each of the theaters has changed to improve the sight lines. And uh, having that fourth screen just makes our job easier when we're trying to go after films that we really want and that could play for longer than just two weeks. My guests on London Lopez at Large today are Mike Major and uh, Karen Cooper yeah. of Film Forum. Uh, this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. So, Mike, how does it work? Do the two of you program American Independence and Foreign Art Films while Bruce Goldstein programs the repertory side? That's right. Bruce Goldstein is the director of repertory programming since 1986. Mm-hmm. When he came on board, I believe that uh, he had a different idea of how to program repertory than what was being done in the 80s, which... My understanding, I, I moved to New York in 93, but my understanding is that there were a lot of double features and a lot of split bills and maybe a festival of one director. And Bruce felt strongly that there were particular titles that could be uh, theatrical runs for a week. For example, there was an alternate version of Red River, hmm. that of Howard Hawks's Red River starring... An alternate version? How did he even know? And... It, it popped up, he said, in, as part of a split bill at a revival house, and he was able to convince the studio to make a new print, mm. a new 35-millimeter print, and that he would give it a one-week engagement. And that, you know, yielded revenue for the studio. Other theaters around the country wanted to book this. And it's that kind of formula that has worked so well for him. I think he's estimated that he's, he's encouraged or prodded studios to make... Uh, approximately a thousand 35 millimeter prints some of which are still in circulation around the world today although now he does put together festivals of like-minded filmmakers or yes or 
or some of the great directors. And he's trying to, and, and he always tries to find a fresh angle on a f- on familiar films. Like, for example, right now he's doing a series called The Women Behind Hitchcock, and it's focusing on the work of Alma Reville, who is Hitchcock's wife and a screenwriter and editor and a continuity uh, expert, and Joan Harrison, who was Hitchcock's secretary, and she was also in story development and became a screenwriter herself. It's tied into a, a book by Christina Lane about Joan Harrison called Phantom Lady. And uh, So this is a new way of looking at old films. Exactly. We're, we're looking at the films that Hitchcock made with these two women and also the films that they made apart from Hitchcock. Uh, Joan Harrison made some films with uh, the director Robert Siodimak, like Phantom Lady. Mm-hmm. And Alma was apparently such a meticulous continuity person that in those days it was the title was Script Girl. Um, she was apparently the only one in the room who noticed that Janet Lee was still breathing at the end of the shower scene in Psycho, <laughs> and they had to go back and cut the negative. Well, but then the two of you book other films, and how do you find the films that you book? Do you go to European festivals? Do you go to uh, American festivals, or do people come to you? Both, both. Um, the short answer is is that we reach out to filmmakers mm-hmm. whose work we're familiar with and those we've read about in, in film magazines and in the trades. But we also attend a lot of festivals. Mike goes to Cannes. He goes to Toronto. I go to the Berlin. Fe- Actually, we both go to Berlin now. Um, there's a wonderful documentary festival in Amsterdam that I attend every year. So we, we cast a very wide net. And I think unlike most theaters who... Um, you know, Bruce used to make a joke about picking up the phone and ordering 20 pounds of Woody Allen or something <laughs> like that. We, we don't just order in bulk and we, do, we don't order from one particular distributor. We go after individual titles, whether we know the filmmaker or we know the sales agent or the distributor or not. We even make deals directly with the filmmaker, a filmmaker who doesn't have U.S. distribution, if that's what we have to do to get that film on the screen. So you're looking for quality films that might not get shown otherwise Absolutely. in New York. Yeah. These are all New York City theatrical premieres. And we do this together. I mean, we, we see a lot of films on what's called Vimeo, which is uh, an internet link. And uh, unlike the days when I played 16 millimeter and you had to literally lug the film around and put it into a projector and throw it onto the wall, you know, screen it on the wall and then take it back to the post office. I mean, it's very easy and convenient to look at this work digitally and to make decisions very quickly on a great mm-hmm. number of films. And we, we have a lot of files of films that haven't been released yet in the U.S. And these can go on sometimes for years, and we, we stay in touch mm-hmm. with the sales agent or the filmmaker, and years later we can finally book the movie. For example, um, Kusama. Remember the Kusama film? This Kusama the film, there were actually two different Kusama <laughs> documentaries, and we showed one of them. And also, Oscar Farhadi had a film called About Ellie, which went without American distribution for many years before we were actually able to show it due to legal issues. And then probably, I think the biggest example of that would be uh, Amazing Grace, the Aretha Franklin mm-hmm. film, uh, which you know we learned about six years before it was sitting in the can for six years and nobody was showing it it was it's a it's a long complicated story but essentially it was um it was finalized and finally mixed properly by a team led by alan elliott Mm -hmm. and it went without 
it was never finished because Sidney Pollack had hired a film crew and apparently they were not using clappers. So the film was actually out of sync and it took a long time. A Sidney Pollack film Sydney was Pollack. done that poorly? This, wow. He'd never made he, a documentary. He uh, made a documentary film before. He made a concert film before. And, but he had graciously turned over the project to Alan mm-hmm. Elliott to finish. And that film, because of complicated rights issues, was not really finalized, finished, and ready to be shown in a theater until about two months before we showed it. And that's where the fourth screen actually of came course, in handy. The timing worked out well because yeah. she had just passed away. So. Well, also, there is, is reason to believe that, that she didn't want the film shown. And nobody is quite clear about yeah, why not. She said she was a, a, looked a little too overweight? No, she was brilliant. She's mm. absolutely at the height of her powers in this movie. And people, I mean, she's soaring. People come mm. out really... Uh, floating after they mm-hmm. hear and see this film, and yet during her lifetime it was never released. Now, you're the only autonomous non-profit cinema in New York City, and one of the few in the United States. The, is the fact that you're a non-profit mm-hmm. uh, important to this story, because then you don't have to worry about whether you draw a big crowd for a, a, a film that may be risky, even though you think it's really good? You know, we do both. We, we, we show films that we feel are going to make money and are going to have a, a wide appeal, but we also will focus on some pretty bizarre stuff. And we feel we, we can do that because, as you say, we're nonprofit and we can take those risks. We were just talking about this this morning, about some of the odder subjects we've shown films about. We showed a film called Dust. Now, that's pretty amazing, a film literally about dust. Another <laughs> one about the B-52 bomber. Another about slime mold called The Creeping Garden. Almost any subject handled by a good, imaginative filmmaker can be made fascinating because the world is a complicated, fascinating place. Were you surprised by any of the ones that became big hits? It, of course, you still yes. rely very much on reviews. And, sure. Uh, I, don't, I guess a good review in the New York Times would be a major factor? It used to be the, the critical factor, and today much less so. Um, I think the Paper Times is, is obviously read by many fewer people than online, but in general we find that, that a good review doesn't guarantee an audience and a bad review doesn't damn the film the way it once did. So critics actually play less critical a role today than they did even 10 or 15 years ago. Because I, there was a time when Andrew Saris would give somebody something, uh, a rave review in yeah. the, the Village Voice, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and uh, suddenly everybody wanted to see it because they trusted him. Well, I think that's part of the issue, that the critics today don't have that kind of following that people had in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, there are still people who have a certain point of view, like Jim Hoberman, who mm. writes in uh, sometimes an art forum, sometimes in New York Review of Books, and I think people have a sense of what it is he looks for in a film and what he'll be responsive to, but most of the critics do not have that kind of clear point of view. I would say one example of a film that surprised us in terms of how well it did would be Particle Fever, which is a <laughs> documentary about the Higgs boson particle. Mm-hmm. And I think we had to be talked into a two-week locked engagement mm-hmm. by the distributor, and it wound up 
being one of our biggest hits that yeah. that summer. I think there's a real thirst for information about physics. Mm-hmm. I've done a number of shows on quantum mechanics and mm-hmm. related subjects and gotten more feedback, positive feedback from them than some of the others that I thought I might have gotten great feedback mm-hmm. from. Uh, there's, a, there's a hunger for certain kinds of information that we're not getting normally. Yeah. A lot of the films, we, not, I shouldn't say a lot, because we, we open probably 50 different features a year, but a good number of them are on subjects that are scientifically oriented or nature or animals. All of those are subjects we've, we've found work for us personally as programmers, but also there is certainly an audience for these films. We have a film coming up about Oliver Sacks. Mm. the great author and neurologist that opens on May 6th. And it was filmed during the last few months of his life. And as you probably know, he was wonderfully articulate and very... He's a great guest. I've had, I've had him as a guest. A time. Very candid and you know delightful and, and can speak about decades of, of work and uh, how he was originally... Um, you know, dismissed by the scientific establishment. We have a film coming up the beginning of June called The Ancient Woods, which was filmed by a biologist turned filmmaker who uh, spent 10 years in a Lithuanian forest, in an <laughs> original uncut forest. And it's, uh, it's magical. So how far in advance are you booked? Typically four to six months in advance because we do produce a printed calendar and we have deadlines related to that calendar. I have to also add just that all of the premieres, all of the theatrical runs that we're that Karen and I select are only showing at Film Forum. Sometimes we do share a movie, a kind of bigger titles with other, with maybe one other Manhattan theater, but everything we play is not available on streaming. So there is an exclusivity window that we require for everything we play of at least three months. Okay, commercial theaters, not the case. I mean, many of them have cut that window to 30 days or 60 days. We feel if people are going to take the trouble to come out and see a movie and pay $15, or if you're a member, pay $9, you should be able to see something that isn't on Netflix next month. Well, now Netflix is is producing films, and so there's that complication where mm-hmm. uh, they show it in theaters and they show it on television. I imagine there are uh, it's theaters called, that are really upset that they're competing with TV. I mean, I, I think... Uh, uh, Roosevelt was a trust buster, and he called it the vertically <laughs> integrated monopolies. I uh-huh. mean, and that's exactly what you have with co- companies that exhibit, produce, distribute, and that I would say that is a, a big factor in what what makes exhibition a different ball game than it was twenty years ago. Thinking about Robert De Niro going uh, in in The Irishman. Uh, he might have shot somebody for arranging something like that in the old days. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> now he's the star of the movie. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI 99.5 FM. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. 
we're talking about one of the great uh, film venues uh, in America, Film Forum, uh, with Karen Cooper, who has been the director of Film Forum for 48 of its 50 years of existence, and Mike Majori, who's uh, joined more recently, but has become a, a key figure in putting the uh, the various schedules together. Uh, now, uh, I, I gather that uh, because it's the 50th anniversary, uh, some people have gotten all excited, and you're getting uh, a $1 million gift from the Charles and Lucille King Family Foundation? That's right. That foundation is actually um, monies from the estate of the recently deceased Diana King. And it was her father, Charles King, who founded King World Pictures, which I, I believe was responsible for a lot of very big TV shows. Little Rascals, mm-hmm. Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Oprah right. Winfrey. Big shows. <laughs> Nothing yeah. like anything that you would show in this, film This forum. is true, but Diana King was very philanthropic, and she was interested spe- uh, very specifically in our junior series. We have a, a program on weekends that uh, Bruce Goldstein selects, and they're classics for kids. And the idea here is to develop a generation that comes to see classic movies and that just doesn't grow up on Hollywood uh, fast and furious car chases. What kind of classic movies? We're not talking about cartoons, are we? Oh, sure. Bruce will will show uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Actually, some of his most popular shows have been The Silence. They've been Buster Keaton and... Hmm. um, Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd. He's Chaplin. done. He's had live piano. I mean, I can't think of another theater that regularly has live piano for children on a Saturday and a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. and charges only $9. So we really do give parents their money's worth with these kids' shows. And Diana King was very supportive of that. It's her attorney, her the executor of her estate, Gray Coleman, who is, happily, our chairman of the board, who is, is making it possible for us to receive this major gift, and we'll be naming one of the four theaters for Diana. And they've been giving you money for the last 15 years. They have, but, I mean, much much smaller amounts. You know, if we're going to do a commercial for money givers, I have to <laughs> say thank you to our public funders, who are the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. Are you afraid because there's always a, a threat to defund those? Absolutely. Uh, well, there's always a threat. The, the, they're political footballs. Mm-hmm. Without question, especially the NEA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the NEA, those monies... All those numbers have gone down considerably over the years, with the exception of the city money, which has gone up. And that's the credit of the city that they're putting more money towards smaller organizations. You're also uh, being uh, given uh, a quarter of a million dollar grant, a gift from the Robert Jolin Osborne Trust. Now, are we talking about the Robert Osborne, who was the host of Turner Classic Movies for 20 years? That's correct. Correct. I, I can't, I'm sorry to keep saying recently deceased, yes, but he's also recently he, deceased. He was also <laughs> a great guest on, <laughs> on my shows. Okay. And his uh, executor is creating an endowed fund for American classic cinema from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So many of the films that show up on uh, our repertory calendar will be supported with money from Osborne's estate. Hmm. Well, he was obviously a film lover, and his son now uh, has gotten involved as well. No? Or, well, maybe I'm... 
confusing him with somebody else. Uh, so you have all sorts of events that you have planned to celebrate your 50th anniversary? We do. Uh, one of them is going to be an evening with Ethan Hawke coming up in uh, early April. And Ethan will be presenting uh, a very strange movie that has its fans and its detractors, Dennis Hopper's last mm. movie. And Ethan will be talking about it with Jim Hoberman after a screening of a new restored DCP. Now, that's, uh, it's a film that created a big sensation, but it's rarely screened. Why is it so controversial? I have no recollection of this <laughs> film, I have to tell you. But this was specifically the film that Ethan Hawke wanted to talk mm. about. Mike, maybe yeah, well, you he's, know more. I mean, this was supposed to be his follow-up to the wildly popular Easy Rider. And uh, it, it's really an anti-Western, or some people have called it an acid Western. So it, it did not do well at the box office and was quickly scuttled by the studio. But it's worth but it's, seeing again and... Uh, it's been reappraised many times. Yeah, I mean, Film Forum actually showed a retrospective of Dennis Hopper's films yeah. in the late 80s, which the Walker Art Center had organized, and the last movie was considered one of the discoveries of that series. We also have a, a limited edition series by one of our leading artists, Cindy Sherman. What's she doing? Cindy Sherman is another board member and has very generously offered to do a, um, a, a new edition of a print she did in the early 80s of herself as Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> uh, and it's quite wonderful. And, you know, she is really miraculous in terms of transforming herself. And she's going to select another image from the original edition, so it'll be a slightly different version of her Marilyn, and print 50 of them through her gallery Metro pictures and give Film Form 10 of those to sell. So that hasn't quite come to fruition yet she has to make that selection but hopefully by the summer we'll be selling her prints and then there are some films that are also being made in in celebration we have some trailers mike you know about that oh, one called jump cut jump cuts i uh, which i i get well i'm I'm just reading your own your publicity. That's going to be oh okay. Uh, the company Jump Cut yeah. is oh, producing a trailer on our creative anniversary. Yeah. Yes, yes, which will debut in this spring. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Do you have any idea what that's going to be like? It's going to be um, it's it's going to be kind of a trip through our history and images from the films that were, were perhaps best known for showing in, in both on the repertory and the premiere screens. When you look back at the 50-year history, are you surprised to see some uh, of the films that were shown? Films that might at the time have been thought of as marginal have now become uh, some of the classics of cinema? Well, that's an interesting question because, again, Mike and I, thinking about your show, we're talking about the directors who were not at all well-known when we show their work and today are... Uh, are Quite famous. Right. Like Agnes I mean, Varda. Agnes Varda, certainly. Agnes Varda is a good example. Werner Herzog. I mean, Karen had, you know, shown some of Herzog's documentaries as far back as the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I think over, if you look over our history, there are a number of directors who had first or second features that had their theatrical premiere at Film Forum, like Gus Van Zandt's first film, Malanoche, mm -hmm. uh, Christopher Nolan's debut feature, Following. Chloe Zhao. Chloe Zhao's film, uh, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, she made a follow-up called The Rider, which is a really terrific movie. Uh, even Peter Jackson, 
uh, one of his early bad taste movies was a puppet splatter movie called Meet the Feebles, which, <laughs> which we showed after Heavenly Creatures opened. And um, there's some directors who we've really, you know, followed through their, their career, their early part of their career, like Kelly Reichert, whose um, second feature, Old Joy, we opened. And we also showed Wendy and Lucy and, and her Western Meeks cut off. So you have to wonder whether uh, th- these films would have gotten much exposure if Film Forum hadn't been there. Well, I think it's too uh, pretentious to say that, that we were critical elements in these people's careers, but I think it was certainly helpful, and they would have gone on to make films in the years to come without Film Forum, but we, w- we were lucky that... There was an intersection between our existence and our looking for new new art and new work, and they're producing these films so early on. And is it does it continue to be uh, a lot available? Because it's my sense that the movie business is just not producing as much today as it did in the past. In the old days, uh, if you uh, wanted to succeed in the movies, you didn't do television. Today, mm-hmm. you want to be a TV star. In fact, all the old movie stars are doing TV shows. You know, the technology has changed so much that making a movie is a much cheaper experience than it was before digital. So there are... are you mean I in, could use indeed, my phone? In, in, you sure could. <laughs> you could. There are... There are actually quantitatively many more films available to us today than even five years ago. But the quality, I mean, it's always a question of the caliber of the work. I mean, we may look at 500 films a year, Mm -hmm. Mike and I, but we're still only picking maybe one out of ten, if that. Mm -hmm. So quality is always an issue. It's, It's the same issue it was 50 years ago. It has changed, though. I mean, the landscape has changed in terms of the streamers coming in and spending vast sums of money at, at film festivals, especially Sundance. And, you know, f- a film that may have commanded a price of, you know, at the most 100000 or $150,000 three or four years ago, may be selling at Sundance now for $1.5 million or $3 million. There was a film called Boy State, which Apple and A24 purchased for $12 million at Sundance this year. And what are they going to do with that film? You'd have to ask them. I... <laughs> I mean, I clearly, they it. see it as a. It's, it, it was, you know, it was the grand jury prize-winning documentary at Sundance this year, and it, and it was an audience favorite. And they must feel that this that they can put their fuel behind uh, making it a success in theaters. Because uh, I was thinking about the Oscars. Your films tend not to even be considered for Oscars, but uh, the the winner of the well, <laughs> you, you held up your finger. I will Actually, let you. we just we just opened a Polish film uh, a few weeks ago called Corpus Christi, which was one of the five nominees for best international feature. Still, uh, but the, the fact that uh, a foreign film won best film uh, suggests that the movie business is changing an awful lot. It could, although it. And and it's it was exciting to see Parasite Especially that film. win exactly. It was exciting to see Parasite win four Oscars. Um, but I think we have to remember this is the same Academy that gave Best Picture to Green Book just a year ago. So I you know how you know there's there's kind of a weighted voting going on in the Academy, and and sometimes you get a Parasite, and sometimes you get Green Book. Mm-hmm. You don't get to vote. I get to vote okay. in the SAG After Awards, but. Uh, yeah. 
I don't know. The, they, the, my favorites are never the ones that win, so <laughs> what can I say? We've, this, we've uh, actually played a lot of documentaries that have been nominated, and a good sure. number of them have won. Born so, into Brothels was a, yeah. was a winner of Best Documentary. Yeah. Right. And, and a number of others more recently. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a six-minute original movie called The Projectionist that's being shown on television. That's it, related it's on to our y- YouTube channel. It's on our you YouTube have a YouTube channel? channel? We do. Yeah, if you go to YouTube and search Film Forum, our, our channel should come up. And what do you show there? This film. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film that was shot by one of our staff, and he interviewed, uh, I think, three out of four projectionists who give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is to show DCP and 35mm and 3D because it's, it's an unusually complicated booth. I mean, it's not a push a button and movie plays kind of projection booth, and uh, yeah, we can show thirty five millimeter on three out of our four screens. So there are a lot of thirty five millimeter prints that come in, and uh, they have to be inspected, and sometimes they have to be repaired. So this this film is you know fascinating to see behind the scenes what happens when a print enters the film forum booth. That's nothing new. I remember as a kid going to the movies and suddenly uh, the film would stop (laughs) because the uh, the 35mm print split and they had to to re-splice it. Well, as our projectionist Caroline points out in that film, uh, a lot of film breakage and emergencies can be prevented by a close inspection and doing, you know, slight repairs on the print before it's uh, thrown but, up. But the film is, a, is a, a very, uh, it, it's brittle, and mm-hmm. it's easy for it to break, isn't it? Uh, has that, is that a problem for you? Not so much anymore, mm. because so much is DCP. The repertory screen still shows a lot of 35 millimeter, but... What does DCP say? DC, digital... Digital cinema sorry. package. Yeah. which it, it, It's, like it's the it. industry standard for digital projection. It's what you would see at any movie theater you walk into pretty right. much these days. And most films made today, whether they're made in, in an American studio or abroad, are made only for release in DCP. So we do get... 35 millimeter and DCP, and occasionally 16 millimeter. But you're right that 35 is fragile, and we had a situation years ago with a European print that had a magnetic <laughs> soundtrack, and that's a very special track that most American films would never have on them. And we we were being very careful with it and sent it to a lab to be rejuvenated because there were some scratches. And it came back with the track literally melted onto the picture. I mean, it looked like a Hershey bar. So that was the... We had to cancel that film. But that's one of the few times that's that's ever happened. But you don't get that kind of problem with the digital format. I'm speaking with Karen Cooper and Mike Major of uh, Film Forum. Uh, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and all sorts of wonderful things are happening. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. What about the visual quality of films? Does it change? Because uh, there used to be talk about just the difference between one kind of 35-millimeter approach and another. And now with digital, can you notice a difference? Do you notice you have to have You have to have a, a well-trained eye you these to days to, to, know, to notice the difference. But there are directors who still want to shoot in 35, and they even want to show their films in 35 millimeter. We, we had uh, an incredible debut feature 
uh, a few years ago called Son of Saul by a Hungarian mm-hmm. film. It was about Auschwitz. And that was shot in 35, and the director insisted that it be shown in 35 millimeter. And we, you know, this is kind of a rare opportunity these days that a new feature is going to be shown on screen. We actually had two prints. We had a backup print if anything went wrong with the first one. And it won an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. One. Yes, won the best uh, foreign film Oscar, and and it might not have been shown if uh, in New York if Film Forum hadn't t- taken it up. No, no, it would have been shown. <laughs> oh, <but> it <laughs> would be nice to say that, but yes, it was distributed by Sony Pictures Classics, and I'm sure they would have found another theater. But it's um, in watching that film, it, it, there are I think there is a warmth of color, and there's a sh- there's a softness in the picture that you don't get in digital pro- in the best mm-hmm. of digital projection. You know, talking about different formats, we have a film coming up on April 1st called Free Time. It was shot by Manny Kirschheimer in, what, the early 60s in or the 19, late 50s? Between 58 and 60, I think. Okay, and he, Manny shot this in various neighborhoods in New York, and he has done a rejuvenated version of that 16 print. So we're showing it in DCP, but it's absolutely glorious. I mean, it's black and white, and it's beautiful. And that is shot on 16 millimeter, literally, you know, 50 plus years ago. And you can see the city in a whole new light by looking through his eyes. And it looks like it was shot yesterday. It's so beautifully preserved. And that's surprising because 16 millimeter, of course, that was Mm -hmm. the... Well, if you really were a home movie maker, you did 8mm, but 16 was when you were slightly ambitious. But, of course, he was a professional filmmaker, and he has a tremendous eye. We're we're playing it with a short film by Rudy Burkhardt, Mm. and uh, Rudy Burkhardt did a um, film called Under the Brooklyn Bridge, in which he is recording children who literally jumped into the water and swam naked or just with their underwear on, and that was what, the late 40s that uh, that Burkhardt shot that. And it's also beautiful, but it's not... One of the great independent filmmakers. Yeah, Burkhardt was great. And it's not rejuvenated the way Manny's film is. And you can see the difference between the two of them. But again, both shot on 16 millimeter, and they look great. And and Rudy Burkhardt's film is also just a fascinating time capsule of what Dumbo looked like in the late 40s, completely. Some of the buildings are still standing, but most of them have, have gone. And and I believe your brother Philip wrote one of uh, Rudy Burkhardt's uh, monographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is uh, one of the the wonderful things about uh, being able to see old films, especially the ones that were shot in New York, is that you have a sense of how the city has changed over mm-hmm. the years. And I hate mm-hmm. to say it, but I think it always looked better then <laughs> than it does now. I think we were looking at the city through younger eyes, and mm. that, that's part of the reason. So mm. what other real surprises do you have in store for us during your 50th anniversary? Well, I can tell you that on Bruce's repertory screen in, on March 20, he's opening a new 35-millimeter print of the uh, conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's oh. film. Oh. And it's a movie that has been out of circulation for quite some time and this print was personally supervised by Coppola. Oh, that was a great film. Why do you think a film like that is out of circulation for a while? Is it the decision of the, the director of the studio or just changing tastes? My uh, Bruce should be here to answer that question, mm-hmm. but my guess would be that it's rights issues. Mm-hmm. That's, that's usually behind it. Okay, We have... Uh 
a wonderful new documentary by Werner Herzog, someone whose work we've played oh. er, as early as the 1970s, and it's on uh, the writer Bruce Chatwin called Nomad in the Footsteps of Bruce Chatwin, in which Herzog, who was a good friend of Chatwin's, uh, recreates some of Chatwin's famous walks. And as you probably know, he wrote a wild and crazy book called In Patagonia. Hmm. And you really get a sense of how Herzog and Chatwin share many of the same idiosyncrasies. It's a fascinating film about two really multi-talented men. Herzog sure has a lot of idiosyncrasies. I've had the great pleasure (laughs) (laughs) of of interviewing him a number of times. One of my favorite uh, interviews because he's just so open Mm-hmm. And just listening to the sound of his voice is <laughs> yes. entrancing. He also makes great films. He does. Of course. And he has written a book about walking. He and Chatwin are both great walkers, and he went from um, Munich to Paris. He walked over a three-week week period one winter in 1974. And I think we're probably going to be selling that book at the concession during the Chatwin film. Hmm. I should also mention that Bruce has been wanting to put together uh, for years, a series of films uh, with Kevin Brownlow, mm-hmm. the um, you know widely considered the really uh, greatest filmmaker of documentaries on film history and an expert on the silent era. He's the author of The Parades Gone By, and um, on May eighth, he's oh, Bruce is opening a series of films that Brownlow has made and restored or championed or films that inspired him. And he's coming over from England to do right. uh, several programs with Bruce. And that's been made possible by the Osborne Foundation, which we mentioned earlier, and also Ira Resnick, who is a great supporter and friend of uh, Kevin Brownlow. So having Brownlow in person is going to be quite exciting. I'd imagine uh, a number of great filmmakers have stopped by Film Forum over the years, partly because that was the only place they could see a movie they'd been curious about. Actually, Agnes Varder told us that she came by the box office just because she was walking in the area with her daughter, Rosalie, and what were we showing but Jacques Demy, her husband's <laughs> film, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So she was thrilled with that. That was mm-hmm. very serendipitous. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled for Film Forum. Happy 50th anniversary. You um, have become one of the most important film institutions, I think, in in the world, let alone New York City. So pleased that you're there. Uh, and now with four theaters, that's even more exciting, with comfortable seats. <laughs> what more can we ask? Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Karen Cooper and Mike Major of Film Forum. And uh, a reminder, you want to talk about how people can get there? It's it, it, it gener- People say generally it's in Greenwich Village, but it's really in Soho, isn't it? Technically, no, no. It, it's nowhere. It's, it's <laughs> in the South Village, and we're west of Soho and north of Tribeca and... You know, Lower Village is what I've heard some people 209 say. 209 West Houston Street. One train to Houston Street will get you closest, or you can take any train to just about to West 4th Street. Thank you again. It's been such a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kevin O'Donohue and Nassim Adimar of the Positive Mind Center for allowing us to use their first-rate studio facilities. If you're new to the show and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopit at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopitAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows and we invite your comments on all of those uh, those sites. Tune in tomorrow when Dr. Carter Stout will discuss his book, Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. We'll see you then. <laughs>